Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna! Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna. Hi, everybody. My name is DJ Martin. I'm the church pastor here at Parker Ford Church. It's so good to have you with us as we begin the journey of Holy Week with our Palm Sunday service this week. So whether you're a member at Parker Ford or just joining us online, we're so glad to have you with us. This is going to be an interactive service. Like all of our services that go out online, we want you to engage this in a meaningful way. We're going to pause the video and have a time to work on a memory verse. We have reflection questions built in both before and after the teaching. And that's an opportunity for you to once again pause the video and have a discussion with those you're with if you're with a group or if you're by yourself. Maybe pull out a journal or just get quiet before the Lord and spend some time in reflection on those questions. And you'll have opportunity to do that in a few moments. Our first opportunity to engage with the scripture is the memory verse that we'll be working on this week and next week. We had been memorizing together for the past several months, Galatians 2.20. For the next couple of weeks, we're going to work on Matthew 21.9, which, which fits the Holy Week theme and particularly Palm Sunday. This is where the people cry out as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. They cry out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heavens. We'll talk about the word Hosanna later a little bit much or a little bit more later. But for now, what's helpful is to know that Hosanna means save us. It's a, it's a petition. It's a cry. Save us, God. It's a, it's a cry of praise, but also a cry of longing that the king, the true king, would save. So pause the video and I want to invite you to work on this memory verse for a few moments and then continue the service with us today. Our call to worship this morning from the scriptures comes from Zechariah chapter 9, which is quoted in the passage we'll be in, uh, the Palm Sunday passage. I want to invite you to stand and read this out loud with me. Engage the scriptures by reading the words and speaking them out loud. Let's read it together. Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. The Lord their God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. You can have a seat. 
Today's message is titled, Hosanna, never mind. And the reason why I titled it that is because this is exactly what happens with Jesus. As he enters into Jerusalem at the beginning of Holy Week, the people greet him with shouts of praise. Hosanna, save us. They call him king. They call him the son of David. And they expected Jesus to usher in the new kingdom of Israel, to reestablish the dominance of the throne of David, to kick out Rome, to, to free them from their exile, free them from their enemies. But that's not what happened at all, because instead of Jesus coming in with power and declaring military battle and gathering mighty men around himself uh, to do battle with swords and weaponry, instead Jesus goes to the cross. And so within the span of a week, you have the triumphal entry where people are calling him the son of David and the true king to the crucifixion. Hosanna, never mind. We're going to be talking about that. Similar with the birth narrative of Jesus, Christ's coming into Jerusalem as king brought with it all sorts of surprises and confusion for the Jewish people. So here's a couple of questions to reflect on before we go into today's teaching. Did the salvation that Jesus brought to his people match their expectations? Remember, the cry Hosanna means save us. So did the salvation that Jesus did bring, did it match what the people expected it to look like? And secondly, how does his kingdom look different than what people expected? He came in as the king, riding on the colt. And the people praised him as the son of David, the one who was the true Messiah who would sit on the throne of David. And he is and truly is the king, but his kingdom looks so much different than what was expected. So have a time of reflection, talk about these two questions, and then join us for today's teaching. People of Israel had so many expectations for what the Messiah would look like and what the kingdom would look like. And the dominant expectation was that when the true king would come, the son of David, the heir to the throne, would return, the number one thing that they thought would happen was that he would deliver them with military might and victory from their enemies and establish God's eternal reign on earth. Jesus did have victory over the forces of darkness. He did come and do spiritual warfare, but in such an unexpected way. And we're going to look at that today, some of the, un, the expectations that people had for the king and some of the ways that Jesus inverted that or flipped it on its head, which is why I've titled today's teaching, Hosanna! Never mind. Because within the span of the week, the people are ushering in the king, ushering in Jesus to his throne. And by the end of the week, they're shouting, crucify him. Crucify him. We're going to be looking at the parallel text of Matthew chapter 21 and Luke 19 today. Before we get into the text and go any further with the teaching, let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate his word, to guide us, to teach us, and to prepare our hearts for the message. Would you pray with me? Well, Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak. We continue to put human expectations on you in so many different ways. 
Sometimes those expectations may align with your will, but often they don't. People have always been tempted to try to make God in our own image rather than continually being formed in your image. And so as we engage this story, the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, leading up to Holy Week, as we engage this story today, continue to shape us deeper into your image and conform our minds, our wills, our spirits, our hearts, our very souls, deeper into the image of Christ. And we pray this in your name. Amen. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 21 and Luke 19, bouncing back and forth between these stories. Both texts are telling, at this point in the story, they're telling about the triumphal entry and what Jesus does immediately afterwards because it was shocking. It was not what the people expected from David, you know, the son of David coming into his kingdom. It says in Matthew 21, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include this detail, that Jesus sent two of his disciples ahead of him to get this donkey, to get it uh, prepared for him. None of the the three gospel writers, um, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, tell us who these two disciples are. We don't know who they were, but in my imagination, here's what I hope. And someday, maybe when I'm in heaven, I can ask the Lord if this was the case. And if it wasn't, then fine, not a big deal. We'll be in the presence of God. But if it is the case, how cool would this be? So I don't think I I very much doubt it was Peter, James, John, or Andrew because they're so well known and uh, they're the inner circle that almost every time that they're involved in a story, they're listed by name. In fact, Jesus sends two of those uh, inner circle of disciples ahead of him to prepare the Passover uh, meal later in the week and it names them by name. So because these two disciples aren't listed by name, it's, it's highly doubtful that it was Peter, James, uh, John or Andrew, the, the brother of, of Peter. It probably was almost certainly it didn't include um, Judas Iscariot. Um, usually the stories that include him name him as well, which leaves just a list of seven or eight disciples to pick from. Now, the two that I would love if this story resolved around because of, because of all of that this story entails is, is Matthew, the, the author of, you know, this gospel, uh, the book of Matthew, and Simon the Zealot. Not Simon Peter, but the other Simon, Simon who's the Zealot. And here's why. Because Matthew, if you remember, who was Matthew before he became one of the 12 disciples? Levi. He was the tax collector. That's his other name, Levi. Matthew, Levi, same guy. He was a tax collector. And Simon the Zealot, what was a Zealot? A Zealot was a revolutionary who was working underground to revolt against and subvert the Roman Empire. So you have these two men who are diametrically opposed to one another. They couldn't be farther from one another on the political spectrum. This is like Jesus taking, you know, someone who was in the inner circle of Obama and someone who was in the inner circle of Trump and bringing them together in his inner circle. I mean, it's like that, but maybe even more extreme. So Jesus takes 
Matthew, the tax collector, who the people of Israel generally would have hated because he had sold his soul to the devil. He, he was working for the enemy. He was, he was working for the Roman Empire, collecting taxes and probably skimming off the top to make himself rich like Zacchaeus. And then you have Simon, who had, before he became a disciple of Jesus, had given his life to subverting Roman authority. And Jesus takes these two men. Jesus had many disciples. We know of the 70 that he sent out. At one point, it lists 500 disciples. But he has the 12 apostles, those he had set aside, who he had brought into his inner circle and set aside for the specific purpose of becoming apostolic leaders in the early church. And he includes these two men who are so far apart and in their flesh are enemies. And he brings them in. And I would love if in this story, and this is totally speculation, but I would love in this story if these were the two men that Jesus sent to get the donkey that he rode in on to symbolize the coming of the king. Because the coming of the king, Jesus came to reconcile. He came to reconcile Matthew and Simon the Zealot, the tax collector and the revolutionary. He came to reconcile the Jew and the Gentile. He came to reconcile man who had fallen, humanity that had fallen so far from God, with God. And he also came to reconcile the Samaritan and the Jew. And all of these different cultural barriers that divide people, he came to be the payment, the reconciliator between these various warring groups. And so I would love in this story, if it was Matthew and Simon, regardless, Jesus sends two disciples to get the donkey. It says in verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. This is from Zechariah 9, which we read earlier for a call to worship in the the passage in the um, sermon earlier. In in verse 6 of chapter 21, it says, the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. So these two disciples, whoever they are, they go and they find the donkey. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now, in Western culture, naming of a child or naming of a person is very important, but it has different significance in different cultures. And in this culture, when you called someone son of David, you weren't just saying, hey, you're an ancestor of this person that lived long ago, or he's your ancestor. What they're saying is they're equating Jesus to King David. By calling him the son of David, they're saying he's the rightful heir of David. And so not only is this a messianic statement, this is a statement about Jesus' kingship. And so as Jesus rides in on the donkey with the coats of the disciples that he's sitting upon, and people are laying down the branches in front of him to usher him in, they're shouting out this this, prayer. This prayer, Hosanna, save us, God. And they're declaring that he is the true king. The king is entering into Jerusalem, the capital city. Not only the religious center of Israel, but also the seat of the throne of David. Hosanna to the son of David. Luke makes it even more explicit that this is a statement about Jesus' kingship. 
In Luke 19, it's the same story. It says they brought it to Jesus, that's the donkey, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. This is even more explicit than calling him Son of David. They're just calling him what they thought and hoped he would be, the King. They said, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest, similar to what the angels were proclaiming to the shepherds when Jesus was born. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Silence them. They shouldn't be saying this. This is blasphemy. Jesus said in verse 40, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. The stones will cry out that I am the king. Back to Matthew 21. This is where the story gets surprising. Because what the people had expected was that Jesus would enter in as king. And like David gathered his mighty men around him. You know, in the lists in Chronicles and in the book of Samuel where it talks about David, David's army. And he's got his military leaders and he's got the mighty men that he gathers around them. And he kicks out the Philistines and he fights the Amalekites. And he establishes the throne in the kingdom of Israel. And it's really the first time Israel has, has triumph and victory over her enemies. And this is what the people were expecting from the second coming of David when, when his, his son, his promised son, would come into the throne. You'd expect Jesus would call to himself a military council. That he'd begin to gather revolutionaries around him, mighty men who would take up arms to establish the kingdom of Israel. But that's not what he does. Instead, he does something extremely unexpected. He doesn't go and claim the throne of David Rather, he enters immediately into the temple, <laughs> the place of prayer. Rather than rebuking the Roman authorities, Jesus rebukes the very people of Israel. Verse 10, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. This is really offensive to the Jewish people because he was supposed to enter into Jerusalem and drive out the Romans. <laughs> but instead of doing that, he enters into the temple and drives out the people who are profiting from the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Much has been said and written about Jesus cleansing the temple and the anger that he shows when he's flipping the, temple, uh, the, the tables in the temple and, and using a whip, it says, in another passage to drive the money exchangers out. He doesn't do any of that with the Romans. <laughs> he doesn't flip any Roman tables. He doesn't pull out a sword or a whip and attack, you know, the centurions or the soldiers or Pilate. 
you know, you know the old spiritual, the old hymn, you may have heard of it, he never said a mumbling word. And the, that, that song is a reflection how Jesus went through the entire crucifixion story and he never defended himself. That was offensive. That was offensive to the people of Israel at the time because they were expecting someone to come with power, someone to come with might, someone to, to stop getting pushed around and push their enemies around for a change. But instead, Jesus comes and he only has prophetic words for the people of Israel themselves. His anger is directed at those who are using the temple for personal gain, not against Rome. This is very offensive to the people, and this is why they turn on him so quick, why they go from Hosanna to never mind, so quick. Verse 13, it, it is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and teachers of the law, and this is who he's really offending, those who had some power, those who had skin in the game, um, the, the chief priests and the teachers of the law were the, were the power holders in this system. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting out in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, once again, save us King David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. All right, let's go back to Luke and see what, how Luke reports on the same event. Once again, Jesus comes in. Remember, in the Luke passages where they explicitly say, Blessed is the king who's coming. In verse 41 of Luke 19, it says, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. See, what the people thought would bring them peace was the military, <laughs> a strong military leader. Jesus is saying what would bring you peace is repentance and turning to Yahweh through his son. Verse 43, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Rather than Jesus kicking out Rome, he's prophesying to the city of Jerusalem that Rome is actually going to completely destroy and obliterate the city of Jerusalem, which is exactly what happened about 40 years later in 70 AD. The people of Israel revolted, and uh, there was a, a military revolt in Israel, and um, <laughs> Rome came in all of its power and fury and might and destroyed the city and destroyed the temple and destroyed the nation of Israel as it was at that point and sent the people of Israel into exile scattered throughout the Roman world once again. So Jesus is prophesying that this is going to take place, which it did 40 years later. Verse 45, when Jesus entered the temple courts, so once again, Luke is saying the same thing. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. The people are expecting a military king, but instead he goes into the temple he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple. So this is how he spent the time between the triumphal entry and going to the cross. Every day he was teaching in the temple 
But the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Hosanna, never mind. You see, both of these extremes in the course of just a few days. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, you're the king, you're the heir of David. Crucify him. Crucify him, they shouted. What has he done? Pilate, the, you know, the Roman pagan asks, he hasn't done anything to deserve death. Hosanna, never mind. How often are we tempted to do this with God when he does not meet our expectations? When things don't go the way that we hope they did, will, or did, when we're angry, when we feel like he's distant, we're so quick to go from shouting acclamation and praise to turning our backs, never mind. It's like, you know, the honeymoon of a relationship where everything is, is just roses and sunshine and everything's going well. And then you get two or three years into marriage and kids enter into the equation and financial trouble and all of a sudden stuff hits the fan and <laughs> that honeymoon seems so far in the past. We can do the same thing with God and people have done this with God generation after generation. I've done this with God, surely you've struggled with this at times where you've brought an expectation to what you thought Jesus should be like and he didn't meet that expectation. You may have heard me say this quote before, but a French philosopher uh, once said, you know, God created man in his image and then humanity has spent all of human history trying to return the favor. <laughs> his point is that we're always trying to make God fit our image of who we think he should be. So what I want to invite you to do as we go into Holy Week is I want to invite you to reflect on the upside-down nature of the kingdom. Because the expectation that the Israelites had was that Jesus was going to come, the Messiah was going to come and set up an earthly kingdom where he was going to punish their enemies. But rather than that, Jesus came and he did bring salvation, he did bring victory, but not in the way that they expected. He did sit down on a throne but it wasn't a throne like Solomon's throne with the, with, you know, the golden lions and on the steps and inlaid with gold and pearl and ivory. He sat down on a throne of wood. In fact, he was hung on the throne. Lifted up was he to die, fulfilling the prophecy of Daniel 7, the Son of Man, lifted up. And it wasn't the, the, the throne of Solomon, it was the throne of the cross. Rather than a golden crown he put upon he was uh, put upon him the, the crown of thorns. It's the upside-down kingdom. Rather than driving out the enemy, he saved his enemy. Rather than coming to divide the people of Israel from their enemies, he came to reconcile Israel with her enemies. And that's what our Easter message is going to be about. Our Easter message this, this year, and then we're going to spend several weeks talking about this in the coming weeks, about reconciliation because of the resurrection. And so as we think about this passage, I want to invite you to reflect on the following questions. How did Jesus turn the notion of salvation on its head? They cried out, Hosanna, save us. So after listening to this teaching, reflecting on these passages from Matthew and Luke, how did Jesus take the notion of salvation and turn it on its head? How did Jesus turn the notion of kingship on its head? And finally, why is reconciliation with God and others at the very foundation of the gospel message? Take a few minutes, reflect on these questions, and then join us for today's benediction.
Once again, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope this has been a meaningful time of worship and reflection on the upside-down kingdom of our God and the way that he ushers in reconciliation between God and man and between human beings in such a surprising way. I've had a passage on my heart leading up to Holy Week, and it's, it's kind of a strange one, but I actually want to end this service with it today. It comes from Numbers chapter 23. This is when the Israelites are approaching the land uh, to enter into the land, and they're stopped uh, by the Moabites there. And one of the Moabite kings hires this prophet, Balaam, to curse Israel. But every time that Balaam tries to curse Israel, he ends up blessing them. And in one of those encounters, he speaks this amazingly profound thing about the nature of God. Maybe you've heard it before. This is from Numbers chapter 23. And so by way of benediction, I want to speak this over us to remind us of the nature and the character of God. What Jesus did, his journey to the cross, his refusal to set up an earthly kingdom like people expected, it was not an accident. God is always intentional in the way that he acts, and Jesus was intentional every step of the way. So by way of benediction, Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, it says, God is not human that he should lie. Not a human being, that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I have received the command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot change it. He has always blessed his people and he continues to bless his people through our relationship and the example and the reign and the victory of his son, Jesus Christ. So may you be blessed in the name of Jesus. May you enter into his kingdom, the upside down nature of it. May it change and reform your life continually. And I pray that you have a great day and a wonderful Holy Week. Go with God, be blessed.